0: imagining that a guard was there and he'd leave the room and I'd come in and he'd be tied down like lying face down on the floor and what I would do is just lift my foot up and step on that metal rod spine on his back for two hours and just listen to the screams of his suffering Chris Chavez, aka The Thick with Two C's, powerlifter, muscular, a sexy bad boy, former cocaine dealer, and single because his fiance walked out on him three weeks before the wedding because she just couldn't take him anymore.
1: Tristan Blue, aka The Thin, aka Twigs R Us, standing at 4'11, giving blue balls to your friendly neighbor, giving the meaning of skinny to a whole new level, looking like the kid my uncle touched, looking like the rapiest fart I've ever seen in my life, Mr. Blue.
0: And together we make the Thick and Thin Podcast.
1: What it be, what it do, this is Chrissy Pooh.
0: Howdy folks, this is Tristan Blue. I kind of rhymed
1: a little bit.
0: Yeah. I didn't, even, I didn't even think about that. I just thought about that like two seconds before we started this recording.
1: But
0: I haven't even talked to you in like three days. Yeah, it's been a bit. How you been? Uh, been good, man. Just uh busy with work. You know, I busy with bowling. I don't know. I I'm trying to remember what I even did this weekend. And it's kinda of crazy that I don't remember given that I was sober the whole time. Uh oh, it was my dad's birthday this weekend. And
1: you
0: forgot that. Yeah, for a split second. <laughs> um so Antonia and I took him and my mom out to lunch for his birthday and my dad is a really outdoorsy guy. Um, so we went out to Cabela's. He got some fishing lures and my uncle, who he goes hunting with and fishing with quite a bit, makes his own shotgun shells. And so he was looking for primers, which apparently are hard to find, which is part of, it's a part that you use to make a shotgun shell. So, uh, no, my dad's a very simple guy. He, uh, it doesn't really take a whole lot to make him happy or entertain him, so.
1: I mean, out the same exact way. Very <laughs> simple. Straightforward. Buy me food and I'll be the happiest guy in life.
0: It's kind of weird. With me, it's with me. It's head rubs. I like my head rubs.
1: Well, I'm not going to rub your head. <laughs> uh, you have a fiancé for that?
0: I do. She she does it very well, too. There's a reason that she is my fiancé. There's many reasons she's my fiancé. That is one of them.
1: But the biggest one is the scratches.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
1: But if she does somehow leave to out of state and you're here, I will stretch her head. I appreciate that. You know, for me, I had a really weird weekend. Outside of work, I went on a date today, which is very
0: weird. You know, I, I feel so rude because you asked me how I'd been doing and I'm like, <laughs> it didn't even, bo- even occur to me to ask you how you've been doing. So you went on a date, you said yesterday or today? Today
1: today that's why i'm kind
0: of dressed are you going on a date you already went on the date date. when did you get off work
1: i didn't work today
0: oh you didn't work today no i thought you normally worked today oh well sunday monday oh okay so you had a date today uh middle of the day monday date i'm guessing that's got to be kind of cool because you don't really have to worry about a ton of other people being around wherever you guys went that was a downside oh wasn't the downside that
1: was a really downside because i really got to know her (laughs) we went to get sushi
0: Never a bad thing. No, no, no. Sushi's great.
1: She was... I don't want to make myself seem like I'm all high and everything, but her... She's a very sweet chick. Uh Nice. Christian woman. And if it was me three years ago, I would have fallen for this chick in a heartbeat. But she has no ambition.
0: Yeah, the ambition thing, actually, before I found Antonia, after I'd gotten myself together, because I think there was... A good long while where I didn't have a whole lot in that department or I or I did but it was so in a way that kind of exuded a lot of hubris I guess but once I once I got myself into a position and around people that showed me and taught me about ambition that was something that I looked out for as well and there was a girl and I'm not gonna lie I felt really proud of myself for this especially with her with our generation, talk to my parents and I'll talk to my dad all the time, and he would talk to me about like what the dating scene was like back when he was younger and what have you. And back in those days, you didn't have all the dating apps and whatnot. so if you saw somebody who you were attracted to, you had to go walk up to them in person, ask them out on a date. And I actually did this, and I think it was when I was eating at a Mongolian grill type of restaurant. It was the waitress or whatnot, And she actually said yes. So then we kinda had a somewhat date, but the date was us mainly just walking around downtown. I think it wasn't too long after that where I ended up deciding to stop talking to her because I asked her about her ambitions and what her dreams were because for me that's really important. I'm like, I really wanna know the answer to those things, especially because that tells you like what value you can add to that person from kind of a selfless perspective. And as soon as she went literally out of her way to avoid talking about that, it kind of just told me, I'm like, okay, I don't think we're really a fit. And I moved on. So I I totally understand that. It's
1: just, she had her ambition. She wasn't that ambitious. As in, she didn't have like a five year goal. Maybe a ten year goal. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is. But I like to be challenged. And she's very singly, like,
0: Okay. I was not going to is that why you like your, quote-unquote, what the... Or the popular term would be is an alpha? Is that why you kind of are into that kind of thing? Is that they challenge you, or... In
1: a weird way, it is. I mean, it's challenging them, and it going not sound kind of weird, but it's like taming them in a way. They're going to be very type A with everybody. Right. But, like, with me, you know, she, she's not... She knows I could, be, I could probably you know, I control her down. Right. Something about that. I don't know what it is. I just... Seek
0: it. Which is interesting because you're not really that type of personality yourself.
1: No, but generally. it's just... I don't know what it is, man. Because when a type A gets going, she gets
0: going. Dealt with that in the past. I, I know how that can be. It's kind of interesting because I'm not with... is not like that at all. And for me, that's actually refreshing. I think for me, what I had realized was I didn't, at the end of the day, really care about the... That woman was like type A or type whatever. It was more of just about what she was after and what I was looking for, trying to understand the value that we both brought to the table in a relationship because for me I was looking for a match there. And I think usually once you kind of get to grips with that, I think dating actually becomes pretty easy. It's not or simple. I would say simple. It's not easy. Dating is not easy at all. It is I think it is simple if you can if you make it simple. But, given all those things, whether if you're a woman, man, whatever the case may be, you're probably automatically eliminating, probably at least on a low end, 95% of people, if you already have that understanding of what you bring to the table and what you're looking for.
1: Dating is, is easy. Yeah. Because dating is basically the trial. Right. But commitment is a hard part. Because once you make that commitment... You... Like you say, you have to do that 95% of the people that have to be kind of, you know, out of the picture just so your relationship could actually work out better.
0: Yeah, it's, a uh... commitment is definitely something that people have a hard time with for a lot of different reasons. I'd say that a good chunk of my life I definitely had a hard time with it. I think a lot of the influences that you and I have had, though, have had gotten me to a point of not being afraid of commitment. It's kind of interesting because Antonia and I have this conversation about some people that we know that have certain commitment issues. Not not the girl we're trying to set you up with, but, um, but uh, uh, we'll see if that happens. Anyway, um, anyways, though, um, I think it's very easy for people to fall into the trap of being afraid to commit mainly because of how they've gotten burned in their past. Which, given your story in the first episode, that would be very understandable. I think after the story... One of the big things that I learned out of the story that I'm going to talk about today, mainly what this episode is going to be centered upon, is really not letting the fear of striking out keeping you from playing the game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And all. And as we get into that a little bit, I'll explain how I was in the mindset where I was afraid of doing that yeah. and, and how that transformed for me because of this experience, along with other ones that were happening at the time. I think, I don't know about you, and I think a lot of people would relate to this, but I think in my 20s, now that they're pretty much over, I can look back and say that there were a lot of formative Growing and life-changing experiences that I had in my twenties, and you're—I mean, you still got some a few years left, but you're—you're you're well into your twenties. You've had. Well,
1: Considered my late twenties, man. It sucks. <laughs> I'm almost thirty.
0: Dude, you're like twenty-six or twenty-seven, aren't I'm you? I'm about
1: to be twenty-seven. Three years after that, guess what? I'm hitting that three-zero. At least I've had a girlfriend.
0: <laughs> Dude, I'm looking forward to my thirties.
1: Well, you're getting married, and you'll be in thirties.
0: I think, honestly, at this point, even if I were single, I'd still be looking forward to my 30s. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to
1: be a 30-year-old though, going to, like, clubs raves. That's just depressing. <laughs> I at least want to be building something if I'm in my 30s still.
0: Well, yeah, I think the 30s is, like, the peak decade because you have a really good mix of still physical prowess. Because you can still be in really good shape and feel really good at thirty. But you also have some wisdom and life experience behind you that you don't have at 20, for example. And I think that the 30s the thirties and 40s, I think, are the best two decades to marry those two things together.
1: It's official. In the 30s, I'm going to be a guru. <laughs> I can finally see that experience.
0: A guru of what, though?
1: I don't know. Maybe... I don't know whatever my gift is, you know, that God had me doing. Well,
0: I mean, we've talked about it before. Talking to broken men. God's, you said God would speak to you when it comes to these things. So,
1: it's just, I still find it kind of weird that a lot of people come up to me, friends, some family, that ask for advice, and I'm like, five years ago you would not have asked me this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's interesting is I have a couple friends. I don't know why I became the source friend for these friends, but they were asking me dating advice before before my re- current relationship was even established. When I finally got smart about giving dating advice, even though I lacked credibility in my eyes in that arena, I sourced people who didn't. And I know that one of the things I were planning on doing a little bit later down the road with podcast is talking about those things a little bit, especially mm-hmm. like, you know, as Antonia and I get married in November, having some episodes around that time that center on relationships and marriage and whatnot, and bringing in people that have you, like, have a much greater degree of credibility, because Antonia and I have not yet lived the marriage experience, but we know people who have lived it very well, but going back to the dating advice, I would source people that have long been married to where I got my dating advice from, because until I felt like I had enough credibility, I felt like I had to lean on the credibility of other people that have actually had success. And now that I am in a position where I am happily engaged and whatnot, I do feel like I have gained some, a little bit of credibility, not, Mm -hmm. still not like an expert level of credibility, but, but quite a bit, but yeah, to the, to this day, I don't. I don't don't get that, why
1: why that was the case. It hit me last week when I had just like a, I was just hanging out with some friends, and you know, one day, just randomly, an older woman, she's probably in her 40s, asked me for dating advice, and what she should be looking for in a man, which I already thought that was kind of weird, but I'm like, you know, thank you for the... The, you know the trust that you have in me to be speaking into you and i've also had somebody even like someone in their 30s ask for advice from me too because they were going through some certain situations with their lives right and find, i'm still finding it a little bit weird though giving advice to people who are older than me when i feel like it should be the other way around
0: you know what's interesting though is if somebody who's older than me asks for my advice I think you brought up a really good point when it comes to giving advice, though, too, which is when somebody confides in you in asking for advice. Because usually you don't want to give, you don't want to just dole out advice if it's not asked for. But if somebody's actually asking for it, the point that you brought up about how you're appreciative of them allowing you to speak into them, that might be something that I might start doing because I think it gives the person that's asking for it and understanding that you understand that this is important. And because it's important for them, you're also letting them know it's important to you. Exactly. And it really bonds that that conversation closer. Yeah, no. I think that I think that's a really good idea and also like when people are older that are asking you for advice, I actually think it's a huge sign of maturity in those people. Because what I see a lot of people older do is not go to somebody younger for advice because they assume that they don't have the experience for whatever that is. But the way I view it, there's think about two people's experiences as like a Venn diagram where that that's inside of this big box. The big box is the whole life experiences that anybody ever could have. It's an infinitely huge sized box. And within that, you got these two small somewhat overlapping circles that entail your experience and the other person's experience there may be things that overlap that both of you have experienced there may be things that don't overlap that he's experienced or she that she's experienced that you haven't and vice versa and I think what a lot of older people tend to forget a lot of the time is that even though their circle may be bigger there may be parts of your circle that they have not experienced. Mm. And I think that people that recognize that, I think, I honestly think it's a huge sign of maturity. There might be, for example, even like something that I am, that I classify myself as good at is bowling. I've seen 15-year-old kids that would kick my ass in bowling. I'll ask them about their game because clearly they're getting results that I'm not.
1: So that means I can probably be
0: any given game, you can beat me on bowling. It's about if you can do it consistently.
1: I just did one. If I won the first one, I quit. And guess what? I'm undefeated.
0: <laughs> Good luck beating me the first game. Well,
1: I'll have a little buddy just in the kneecaps.
0: <laughs> we really should do that sometime. Go bowling together. No, you
1: said you're competitive.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'm just going to practice, I'm focusing what I need to practice on. And
1: Then I'll get competitive. On a sport that's not even mine. <laughs> and then we're not leaving until I win. And then you're competitive. You're not going to let me win.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely not.
1: But anywho, <laughs> you have a story for us?
0: <laughs> I guess I do, yeah. So, good thing we started out light. Uh, buckle up, folks. It's going to pretty much be thick as a bowl of oatmeal. The subject matter is uh, one that I think is kind of interesting, depending on who you are. It's very, it's very tough if you lived it. I think it's fascinating for those that haven't. They literally have TV channels on this shit for a reason, I guess. And because when we were talking with Colleen in the last episode about, about murder mysteries and how just inherently fascinating they are. This story is kind of the, gives me a different perspective on them. And I'm not generally a huge fan of them. But yeah, so... For those of you that are listening and don't know, on June 23rd, 2019, my family and I found out the news that my sister was murdered by her boyfriend of seven years and was buried in a shallow grave in her backyard. You know, obviously, it's... Not exactly the cheeriest of subject matters, but I thought that, you know, as we go along with this show, it's good for you, the audience, to really get a chance to know the people that are hosting this show. In the first episode, Chris and I talked about how we got to know each other. In the next episode, you guys will learn another uh, story from Chris's end of things. He has gotten to a point in his life that despite his fear of public speaking, he is not afraid to let people know who he is. And so that inspires me as his co-host, and I know I'm kind of switching off between third and like second person here, like his and you and whatnot. But yeah, inspires me as your co-host to want to do the same thing and be genuinely authentic with people and as we have guests come on and talk about certain subject matters, some of them serious, some of them not, I think it's important for you guys to know the lens of which, of how we view things and how we view life and the experiences that we've had and understanding that even though we may not be able to understand everybody else's individual experiences through you guys learning about ours, hopefully you guys will know that we we take these things seriously in people's lives, especially if they are kind of more of a thick subject matter. But yeah, so in terms of my sister's murder, essentially the story that I want to tell you guys is how I learned forgiveness from my sister's murderer. I know you've had me share this story once before, and I'm hoping to share it more, yeah. and... So that way I can get better at telling the story and doing my sister justice. For me, one of the things that I learned through talking through the story with you initially was that I think I made the mistake of starting the story from the event itself without really bothering to go into the background of things that were going on that were leading up to it for myself personally. Because I think that the impact of what happened with her can really be quantified in a way by telling you where I was at in my life before that which I think will be another good podcast episode in itself it's kind of the precursor of this so as a summary of where I was before everything happened I was actually not in a very good place even before her her death at that point the day of her death I had worked at the current job that I'm at for about two weeks. Before that, I was unemployed for a whole year. I just moved back to Colorado from Louisville. I had started my actuarial career, and I knew that when I moved out of Louisville, I was gonna be probably jobless for a while, and I knew that there was gonna be a price to pay for moving back home. But at the time, I had viewed that move worth it, and I still do. I, Think it's probably one of the best decisions I've made in the last 10 years, honestly. But what I wasn't prepared for was the price that I had to pay. And a lot of the price that I had to pay was self inflicted, because there were things that I didn't understand then that I do now. And so I essentially lived in a year really up until those last couple of weeks. And even during those couple of weeks leading up to it after I got a job, because I damaged some relationships with some people at that point that I was in this mode of feeling entitled with all the work that I did through college. I thought I was entitled to certain things that I wasn't getting. And I was in a perpetual state of having a pity party for myself. And so, you know, one of the biggest things that I had learned out of that experience in hindsight was, and I think it was something one of our mentors actually told us was not to attach your worth with how much money you make. At the time, because I wasn't making any money and I was making nothing, I thought I was worth nothing on one hand. And then on the other hand, I thought I was entitled to have a certain type of job because I'd put in the work to do it, not knowing that I had to work on some people skills at the time. But, you know, I had been seeing someone for a while around that time and I could not imagine what it was like for her, let alone anybody else, to put up with me at that time. I've apologized to my parents a number of times for being an absolute nightmare. You know, there was a point I had had probably about a month before she would passed. I had probably a good three people within a one week span tell me that I was a toxic person, and that they didn't want to be around me anymore. Essentially, that hurt, and I, I I think that wakes you up. When when you it hurts enough when one person tells you that, but when you have multiple people tell you that, kind of hard not to wake up if you have half a brain, honestly. Yeah,
1: because your self worth goes down like a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but for me, I'm somebody that notices trends. I may not notice something if one person says it, but if like multiple people start saying it
1: yeah
0: i'm like oh there's gotta be something to this um maybe not always but it depends on the subject matter but when you got a few different people telling you about yourself when one person's calling you toxic one person's calling you entitled one person's pretty much saying that you need to get your shit together it draws attention if if you have any designs of wanting to be beneficial for yourself and other people i had a talk with a friend and at the time he talked me up a little bit and it may have been what i needed at the time so that way my self-worth didn't feel completely destroyed yeah but it was literally like almost that week when i'd met our our mentor at the time well not yours yet but one who became mine at the time and i was so much in a mentality of like you know i've been trying to figure out this life thing by myself for a while and it hasn't been working too hot for me so the reason i had jumped onto that opportunity was to try to fix that have you ever seen band of brothers
1: no
0: okay so i'll give you and the listeners who've never seen it a little bit of a very quick synopsis because it makes a point and that is so band of brothers was about a company in the army who went to europe to fight in world war ii it's a it's a mini series it's 10 parts directed by tom hanks and steven spielberg and the episode that i'm going to reference is the second to last one it's episode nine where at the beginning of the episode by this point, they'd been fighting in all kinds of different conditions. They'd just gotten out of a long fight where they were fighting in freezing temperatures and snow and all that stuff. And once you're in those conditions for a while, your morale really starts to take a toll. I'm sure anybody that we can talk to that has fought combat, if they've been in the thick of it for a while, I, I'm sure they could tell you that you know morale really drops and essentially it got to the point of them questioning why the hell they were even there in the first place they just wanted to go home they're like we don't understand why we're still here really feeling in a way really feeling sorry for themselves and then they find the concentration camps and it gives them the perspective of oh we we may have been having it pretty bad And you may think you're having it pretty bad, and then you run into somebody that's had it a thousand times worse. And essentially, that's kind of the metaphor that I can think of, of what essentially happened to me. You know, starting this new job, um, being glad that I just got a job, feeling like I had just gone through the heaviest of storms. If I remember correctly, I don't know what day of the week this was, June 23rd, 2019... I know the date just don't know the day of the week if I remember correctly it was a Monday and I get a call from my other sister I have two older sisters my other sister calls me her name's Brittany so I'll give names so that way I'm not you know saying my sister or my other sister this that whatnot it might get confusing so sister that called me her name is Brittany my other my oldest sister the one that got killed her name is Kaylin. So she gives me a call and was like, have you heard from Kaylin the last couple of days? Now, I talked to Kaylin probably about once every two weeks on average at this point. Um, she'd moved to Idaho before I'd moved back to Colorado, so we hadn't even lived in the same state since I think I'd graduated high school. So I told her no, and she had told me nobody had been able to get a hold of her for the last day or two, which... People that knew my sister knew that this was very uncharacteristic. She practically liked broadcasting everything she did. Which, for me, felt like oversharing, but in this time it was... It really came in handy because... When you know somebody's not, like, acting in their normal characteristics, it kind of raises something for you. So for the next two hours after she'd hung up the phone, I tried calling Kalen a couple times. No answer. And so... Brittany calls me back again probably about an hour or two later and she pretty much let me know they were going to her place to go do a welfare check she didn't show up for work mind you this is somebody that normally show up 30 minutes early she was very habitual in her nature and her she was so dedicated to her habits that other people took notice so when she didn't even call in and didn't show up for work that was noticed right away by one of her coworkers that called to do a welfare check and so once I got that call from Brittany letting me know that it wasn't looking good they or not so much that it wasn't looking good that was the next call but the call before that letting me know that they were going to do a welfare check I got a really bad feeling and I wasn't really sure you know what to do I just told her to you know keep me updated and at this point, I think my boss was at a meeting somewhere else. Um, I was like the only one in the office that day. I let my boss and my coworker, my other two coworkers that I mainly worked with at the time, know what was going on that I may, you know, have to go. And so, my Bernie calls me back about 15 to 30 minutes later. Time's kind of blurry for me at this point, but. She pretty much told me that it wasn't looking good, and if you can get home, do so. And so I let my boss know what was going on. And so I left. And I worked downtown near Union Station, so it gives people that are local around here a little bit of an idea of the scenery around me at the time. I'd gotten on... I'd ran to the light rail or the light rail is kind of what we call the transit system around here. The So I run onto the light rail, and I sit down, and and before we even get to the next stop, my sister calls me back. And I'm on the phone. I can hear crying in the background. And she pretty much tells me, Kaylin's dead. They found her body in the backyard. And so I asked her, you know, where she was. And she pretty much said that everybody else was there at um, the house. Actually, here is where everybody else was. And so, you know, I'm kind of sitting there. And looking back at it, it kind of sucked for me in the sense that everybody at least got to be together when they got that news except for me I was alone sitting on a light rail with maybe one or two other people in the car it was empty as could be at that point because it was a certain part of the day that not a lot of people took light rail so I asked her you know how my dad was doing because my dad was suffering from atrial fib or afib I think is the street term for it at the time meaning that you, it's like something where your heart doesn't beat at a consistent rate and it usually has to do with like some sort of issue with like a blood vessel or whatnot I'm not a medical expert but it it was causing him problems and given that my family has a history of heart problems I was really worried about my dad at the time man just lost his oldest daughter and so I was I was like kind of in a mode of like well just lost one family member don't want to lose two you know I asked her how he's doing he was sitting in a chair he's crying so I told her all right I'm gonna be back as soon as I can I'm on the light rail now I'll let you know when I'm back and hang so hang up the phone the only thing I remember feeling during and after that immediately after that call was being in a state of shock it was a very familiar state of shock for me as when my best friend killed himself nine months before that I didn't really cry I I curled up into a ball in the chair that I was sitting on. Probably wasn't the most sanitary thing to do because those things be dirty. And I just kind of stared out the window for the rest of the ride back. I didn't really know what to think, what to do. That lasted for about five minutes. And then I literally felt like I needed to spring into action to do stuff in terms of damage control. Because the thing that's crazy to me is when it came to my sister's death, my mind for the longest time didn't really go to how it was affecting me as much as it was how was it affecting my family, how was it affecting other people, but especially my family. How was it affecting my dad in particular? He was the main one I was worried about. And so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, okay, I got to figure out what I need to do when I get back because... This is this is going to be a shit show, for lack of a better term, when I get back. So I eventually make it back. The neighbors across the street are watching my niece and my nephew. Oh, I say my niece and my nephew. My nephew wasn't even born yet. My niece was barely one. I don't even think she was one. She wasn't even one, one years old yet. I'm going there. The first person I see is my brother-in-law. Now, this guy is a very old school, tough kind of dude. He was bawling his eyes out. I've seen him cry only twice. This was one of those times. The first thing I'd do is obviously, you know, acknowledge him and whatnot because, like you know, people are hurting. you got to acknowledge each other. But what I really wanted to do at the time was see where the hell my dad was, find my dad right away. And I think the first thing I walked in on him and said was, listen, I know that this is a really tough time right now. But I need to make sure that you're ultimately going to be all right. And that your heart's doing good. Because we've already lost one person. I can't lose two. And my dad being also kind of the old school type of guy that he is. Assured me that he would ultimately be all right. And I think even if he wouldn't have been. I think he still would have told me that. Because my dad has. Been the type where. And this will come up a little bit later in the story where. He will not want to tell my sister and I things that would be potentially upsetting as a means to protect us. Yeah, Things start happening very fast after that. Um, by the time everything was said and done, I ended up taking two weeks off of work. My parents grabbed the first flight out there. My sister and I didn't really know what was going on yet. Her and I ended up driving out there. And I think we left at 10 o'clock at night. So, I think we drove there and... there to like the middle wyoming where we stopped and rested at like four in the morning or something like that she wanted to rest honestly i was in a state where i could have kept going just because of the state that i was in you know when i was driving my parents to the airport it was it's kind of interesting the drive the two drives driving my parents to the airport and kind of the road trip with my sister were both very memorable in different ways my parents My dad had said something which I think was definitely out of a state of anger because we knew right away who did it. Like, the guy didn't even try to hide it. He'd said some pretty graphic things of what he had hoped would happen with the guy, and honestly, given his position, I understood it. The thing that was weird for me, and I, to this day, don't quite understand it, but I do think it was God, honestly. The heart of forgiveness for me sat in right away i did not spend very very much time being mad at him you know the, this started coming more and more focus for me later but at that time i just felt like i didn't have the time to be mad at him i just needed to look after and take care of my family so i remember that and my mom having my mom and i having to talk about forgiveness and whatnot because i think She was, she kind of experienced a similar thing in that regard. The interesting thing was with Brittany doing the road trip up to Idaho with her. Her and I, in a weird way, because we were always sibling rivals as a kid, I think it was one of the deepest bonding moments her and I have ever had. We listened, we just listened to music and jammed out because we knew what the situation was, but we were trying to get some good out of it. And when her and I, ...had a very similar objective at the time... ...which was making sure our parents were okay. Or as okay as they could be. You know, the thing that's amazing to me... ...and as I get into the next part of this story... ...the thing that's real interesting... ...and kind of beautiful in a way to me... ...was the biggest... ...one of the biggest things that stuck with me... ...besides the forgiveness aspect... ...is when a human or humanity... ...shows you its worst... ...the absolute worst it can offer you got other humans stepping in to show you the best it can offer. And this became very apparent when I got to Idaho Falls and traveling there. My parents told me the story about when they flew, there was this couple there that they were sitting next to on the plane and they were letting them know what was going on. And I think this couple was flying home from wherever they were going. This couple had... I think offered them a place to stay for a night and um, offered them a ride to the hotel I think we ultimately ended up staying at. Total strangers, but just opened up their hospitality to my parents. It's a small enough town where people know the stories that go around in in their town. And when the last name Blue came up, when you were there immediately after everything happened, people knew who you were. Which, is a, which was a really weird position to be in. I'd never been in that position before, nor do I think I hopefully will ever be again unless if it's for something good. Yeah. But um, let's see, the hairdresser that gave my mom a haircut and then when she went to the checkout register and showed her, her ID and everything or whatnot, I don't know how my mom made her aware of who she was. Lady didn't charge her a dime her haircut learning and meeting the people that she worked with at Walgreens and her garden club so my sister didn't really she didn't live what most people would consider a glamorous life but she lived a very simple happy life she loved her job at Walgreens she loved doing gardening that was that was it for her like it was um she liked going to the zoo I think too but not a whole lot to do in a town like Idaho Falls but the community of people that she was surrounded with really embraced her. And I think that's why she loved living there so much. I think the toughest part of that trip for me was to see the loss and all those people. Yeah. In a time where I cried very little, especially in front of people, I think I only cried in front of anybody once during that whole trip. And that was when I had a mental breakdown due to lack of sleep. The Between the time traveling up there and... The first day up there, I think in those two days, I was lucky to get three hours of sleep combined in those two days. And so I was up for a while, I had a lot of emotions running through me and I'd found out that there was some information that had gotten revealed that my dad had found out before us and he tried to keep it from from us as a means to protect us but it pissed me off when he didn't tell me because I'm somebody that likes to be disclosed with with important information. Outside of that, I didn't... I didn't cry in front of people. But I almost did there. That was probably the absolute roughest part of that trip. Was... Seeing how that loss impacted those people that clearly embraced her. But it also gave me a sense of pride in the fact that... What they would say about her. Because you you really know a lot about a person... About what people say about them after they, after they pass. And fast forwarding to when... My sister's boyfriend was sentenced and everything one of the first things the judge himself said was outside of children do I ever really hear about somebody who's passed where nobody has a bad thing to say about him and to me this made a lot of sense because my sister did have developmental disabilities and a lot of ways she did have the mind of a kid and so I think because of that a lot of people embraced her in that way and it's something that I think a lot more people can learn from because this world is a tough world and I think a lot of people lose that that child inside of them a lot and lose a big part of that but in a lot of ways she never did and I think that was advantageous because it caused her to be happier than probably 99% of the people that lived on this planet but you know we, we do that trip I think we did a news interview um Brittany was a lot more forward-facing with the news at that time. I mainly wanted to keep private outside of, you know, just posting an update on Facebook of, like, the state of how our family's doing because I thought people deserved to know that, the people that cared. And so we're there for a week. Come back. I didn't go. I didn't go to work the week that I came back. And one of the things that I will say is You know, you and I will talk about, like, examples of, like, how nine-to-five jobs where the places don't really care about you a lot.
1: Yeah.
0: I can't really fully say that for where I work because in the position that my boss was in, he had a choice to make between letting me use a bunch of vacation time early, so that way I couldn't have any for a while for this. But what he decided to do was go to his higher-ups and go to bat for me and give me a 10-day paid leave of absence so essentially like i got paid without having to worry about working and i got to keep my vacation time that was one of those examples of like the best of humanity and what have you you know to you know somebody that i know that i had known for a while one of the people that i had kind of chased off you know, shortly before that, her parents had sent me, like, this... Her and her parents had sent me, like, this meal type thing, which at the time was really valuable because once my 95-year-old grandmother, well, at the time she's, like, 92 or so, found out, um, she wasn't eating anything. And this was the first meal that she ate in, like, two days. Um, And it got her eating again. You know, our mentor or your future and now past mentor and mine were invited me to his house just to hang out and have dinner with his wife and his kids. Stuff like that. You don't forget about when you're in your lowest point and people being there for you like that. You don't forget those things. Mm -hmm. And I think really, even though from the beginning that I understood forgiveness I think that that allowed me to get myself into a mentally good enough place to really hone that in and really, really understand what that meant. Because, you know, after all that happened, we had, because of COVID and everything, we had to drag out the process of his sentencing and everything for two years. It was constant. You know, the prosecutor's constantly telling us about a date of which something was going to happen and then it would get pushed back to no fault of their own usually it was usually like honestly the defense sitting on their hands about stuff but covid did impact things and how they operated and what have you so it was it was a pain but in that time before things really got resolved with everything throughout that journey I... I went through a few different things. So whenever Kaylin and her boyfriend would come and visit here, they would sleep in the exact same room I slept in. I was scared to sleep in that room for a while. And then when I finally was brave enough to go back in there, I got new bedsheets, new everything. It just changed the entire look of the room. I did that, but then even at night, I would hallucinate. Maybe not full-blown hallucinate, but imagine because my sister was stabbed in her sleep 25 times in the face and the neck and she wasn't killed right away she'd she'd gotten up to try to run but then he caught her and whatnot. knowing that deep of information especially before a normal person would know that information if I was laying at bed in pitch black at night I'd imagine that I was in her position and then I'd picture him running towards me and it would scare the crap out of me. I bet you
1: didn't sleep that much for a couple of months, maybe. What's that? I bet you didn't really sleep that much.
0: I didn't, I didn't. It really would depend. If I was awake, really awake, I wouldn't sleep a lot, but after a while you get exhausted and it's almost like the little kid that's like afraid of the dark and whatnot, eventually like they just get to a point where they're too tired to be afraid of the dark mm-hmm. and fall asleep. That was kinda of where I was at for a little bit. Let's see. I will say that one thing I do tend to notice when it comes to murders is that the people that it affects, there's a lot more of an anger element to it than probably, say, something like a suicide. I've lived through losing people close to me with both. But there definitely is a more anger element when it comes to wanting this guy to get the worst possible punishment. The next thing I started imagining was... Him in his jail cell, so he had a he had a very rare condition where he also had special needs and what have you. But he had spinal issues, so he essentially had this metal rod that went all the way up his spine, and he had a scar all the way down his back. And if you just like touched it, it would it would hurt. And I knew this. And the thing that I would imagine doing was imagining that a guard was there and he'd leave the room and I'd come in and he'd be tied down like lying face down on the floor like tied up arms and legs and what I would do is just lift my foot up and step on that metal rod spine on his back for two hours and just listen to the screams of his suffering I imagined that for a while And then I realized I wasn't very constructive for my health. So then I'd realized at that moment that I claimed to forgive him but did I really? If I was thinking these things. So then I got into the question that most people ask when somebody leaves this planet that they really care about at an age that naturally they're not supposed to. Which is why that question of why and I actually got that question answered satisfactorily enough for me very quickly actually I don't I think a lot of people try to wonder and I actually think that's the fascination behind things like investigation discovery murder mysteries and whatnot people want the understanding of why and it was actually at a business conference that we went to there was a quote that was said and I remember it and that was those who didn't, that don't care about their own lives, do not care about the lives of other people. This guy had extremely low self-esteem. I, Mind you, I'd spent a lot of time bonding with this guy. A lot of people in my family did not like him, especially hindsight, understandably, and I even back then I understood it. My dad never liked him. But I was like, you know, that might be the case, and I understand why he doesn't. But I'm going to be... I'm going to be the guy that's going to be nice to him and bond with him because for some reason my sister sees something in him. So, you know, if she's happy, I'm happy. That's kind of the motto I went by. And so I spent a lot of time bonding with him. And I could tell in our times with bonding, he had incredibly low self-image. And I'd always try to say things to help him and pump him up because even though he'd done things that even I didn't personally approve of and didn't think was good enough for my sister... That didn't matter. As long as she was with him, I would try to spend time to build him up so that way he could be more of the man for my sister that he should be. As a result of that, I think he actually grew a, an attachment to me in a way. I and mean, I might be wrong about this, but I think Antonia told me this because she was with me at the time of his sensing. So I was the one that went up to read the impact statement for my family. And apparently one of the only times he even twitched. even moved the whole time was when my name was announced as giving the impact statement. And I think the reason for that was you know, even though I think most of who that person was, was gone, I think a little part of him was still there. Out of all those times we had bonding, and me not in a sense judging him the same way that everybody else did. You know, I hope part of that kind of hit home for him. I really do, but I don't know. I, I do think part of me, a big part of me believes he he was already too much gone at that point, but that little bit was there. But I knew he had a really low self-image. For me, that answer was satisfactory enough. He didn't have it he didn't have enough of an image to care about his life. So what would make me think he cared enough about my sister's life to not do something so brash? I don't know. So you know, as as we go along and whatnot, and that day comes after this whole process of his sentencing and whatnot, part of me is excited and part of me is nervous because we knew for a while that when it came to the impact statement, Bernie Bernie is the strongest writer in our family. I don't think it's even close. I can functionally write stuff pretty well, and I... I think if I put my mind to it, I actually write stuff very well. She's an extra level talented at that. But what I have is the speaking ability because Bernie also has some medical problems of her own, which includes a thing in her chest that causes her voice to cut out like once every five minutes. And my voice tends to carry. Now granted, so do both my parents' voices, but The family voted that I should read the impact statement because they thought that I would deliver it the most eloquently without letting too much of the emotions get in the way. Because I think what I think most people think an impact statement is, is the families or the people impacted by a victim addressing the perpetrator. When, in this case, it wasn't really about that, and I don't think in most court cases it actually is. You're actually addressing the judge. To essentially make your case as to why you think he deserves whatever punishment he's going to get. So we get down to Idaho Falls a second time. I wouldn't say it was, I would say it was pretty different from the first time. I don't think there was as much like media attention to it at the time. It was a little bit. I got down there. And for me, I actually viewed it in a lot of ways as a business trip. Because... With me reading that impact statement, the approach that I took to it was that I have a responsibility to my family to do my sister proud. And so in the moments leading up to that sentencing hearing and everything, I was not paying attention to what was going on around me. I was reading the impact statement and I was literally trying to strategize because melancholy, you know, analytical person here. I wanted to communicate the impact statement in a way where he understands that even though he did what he did, I'm not intimidated by him at all. In fact, I could probably take him if there's just him and I in a room and to let him know that my family and everybody remembers and will always remember my sister way more than they will ever remember him. I get to that first couple sentences. I talk fast because I'm nervous. Public speaking is one thing doing that's a whole different deal. And I'm, I'm like you, I'm not a huge, huge fan of public speaking, but when you're in that setting and it's just all silent around you, you got numerous people in that court, you got news cameras on you. Well, not on you because they didn't, end up showing me i learned that later but there were new news cameras in the room so i thought they were on me um i started speaking fast when i'm nervous so the judge tells me to slow down after the first couple sentences because you know there's a court scribe and everything and they got to keep up with what you're saying so i had to slow down a little bit for some reason as soon as he said that my mind instantly went to like cool calm and collected say the 15 minute speech finish up get back prosecutor whispers in my ear that that was one of the best ones that he's ever heard in his 20 plus years of law which made me feel good because I was like I was there to do job but I also think that meant my, that Brittany did a really good job too because she wrote it organized it I just simply delivered it and I was nervous when the sense came in it's kind of like whether or not you got a part for a play or whatnot. not I, I was just like okay so in the way that Idaho works right so Couple things to note. One, and I'm really glad this is the case in Idaho, I think it had to do with an assassination attempt on a president. They don't have insanity laws there. You can't plead insanity in Idaho. The second thing is is that their sentences have a minimum to maximum period and how they do it. Like they can they don't just tell you like, oh you um are convicted of first degree murder you get 25 years. They tell you what the minimum and the maximum is. And kind of the squabbling for a while was what was the minimum going to be. The defense fought for 15. The prosecuting fought for 25. He ultimately gets 25 to life. So I think my family who... We were never going to go after the death penalty with him. And here's the thing. I don't necessarily disregard the death penalty I actually think it's reasonable in certain cases but I think the reason it wasn't here the amount of suffering that he'd have without all of his medications and everything I thought was more punishing than death That that's why I went that route
1: mm-hmm.
0: but at the end of it you know they say when you hear cases like that people are like you know, if the ruling goes, you know, the way you want it to, that you'll get quote-unquote closure. I don't think closure for me really ever happened in that, in that moment. It happened when I decided to forgive him, And it made me think about all of the things in my life that I had held petty grudges on with people. I mean, when it comes to forgiving somebody, that, that, that's pretty much one of the highest bars you can clear of somebody doing something to you that's for that you gotta try to forgive them for and the thing that I hope that people understand that if you're holding a grudge on someone and somebody wronged you in a really bad way or somebody that you care about in a really bad way the forgiveness isn't for them it's for you it's a poison if you allow it if you allow hate to fester I'd seen it with certain members of my family for a while. The reason I was determined to get rid of it quickly... Because those angry feelings that I talked to you about did not last very long. I remember them, though. But the reason that they didn't last long is because I remember how it made me feel afterwards. It felt like I got a... It felt like eating ten McDonald's burgers. (laughs) It, It was awful. I felt awful. It didn't fix anything. Whatever was going to be done to him was what was going to be done to him. I I have zero control over that. But what I do have control over is what goes in my mind and what doesn't. And one of the things that I learned in that journey was to forgive. But then there's another step in the journey that's really hard that most people don't take. That I'm still working on and I still have a hard time grasping my mind around it. Forgiving somebody is one thing. Forgiving and loving that person in spite of what they did is quite another. And when I say love, I'm not talking about like this dude's my favorite person. No. Obviously not. I will probably, given his condition and his sins, there's a chance that I will probably never see him alive ever again. And I am perfectly fine with that. But what I mean when it comes to loving him is, you know, for example, from a spiritual standpoint, you know, say you do believe in God, right? And you have that stuff happen and you do you do something like that. You commit that that sin and you're in prison for the rest of your days. You gotta make peace with him before you you pass on and for me what love means is in that case is hoping that he does but beyond that I have no control over what he does I only have control over what I do and the thing that really is going to continue to be a pain is my Kalen was at Brittany's wedding she got to see the birth of her first child Mm -hmm. she will never get to be at my wedding She will never get to see my children. My children will only know her through stories. That sucks. The cool thing is is I get to tell the story because of how awesome she really was. And I get to tell that story whenever I get to teach my kids what love and forgiveness means because in the worst in the worst moments of your life and anybody that's listening you probably if you can just think of the worst moment of your life you probably have an idea and an image of what that is in your case you may have not had it all that long ago depending on how you view that but i'm sure you got something in mind my whole thing is is if the worst moment of your life if you created something constructive out of that it doesn't have to be for nothing. I learned forgiveness. I'm learning love. A lot of that stuff comes from her and who she was. I have a dream of starting a nonprofit that helps kids in many different ways, and there'll maybe be another episode where I do talk about that. But that dream all started because of her come up with those constructive things pursue those things the worst moment doesn't have to be for nothing honestly the mer- worst moment in your life in a lot of cases can lead to a lot of good down the road if if you,
1: if you let it yeah it can either make or break you know, just it's a whole mindset thing as well
0: yeah it's definitely let's put it this way if i had to trade i'd still rather have her here yeah but that's not how the world works Which was another tough lesson that I had to learn. The world keeps moving. You may lose somebody very important to you. You will in the future. It's the circle of life. No matter what happens to you or anybody else, the world keeps moving. You may pass somebody in a grocery store that may have lost somebody that day. You never really know what's going on with people, but the quicker, if you're really going through something right now in particular, whether it be a loss or really just a tragic life situation for you. Take the time to grieve. That, I, I'm not advocating for trying to move on as fast as possible. That is not how everybody operates. Grieve how you are naturally fit to grieve. Do not judge other people for how they grieve. Something that That's another thing I had to learn. Understand that if you grieve forever the world keeps moving and you have a limited amount of time left on this planet and every second ticks
1: See, something to add to that because um, I kind of had that grieving moment too yeah and you know after my grieving and you know had time for everything to pass off talk to you talk to Colleen, I started viewing people as books as books. As books. Interesting. As it sounds, um, you know, everybody, no, I don't want to say everybody, but there's people that are going to be grieving. You know, they're going to be at the lowest point. You can't judge someone's chapter one when you're in chapter seven.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely not. So
1: you have to, depends on the situation that you're in with that person, Right. you can be there for them and help them get to that chapter two, chapter three, or you come back to them yeah. They're at the end.
0: And for what that looks like for different people is different too. Mm-hmm. And I'd even go even further to saying you can't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter one. No. Because every human is a book, as you may say. Every book, now granted, and actual books may have several copies, I get it. But every story is a unique one. Some stories may be longer than others, some people may take longer than other people to get to the same point know i with the way that i grieved with my sister i got to points a little faster than i think a lot of other people did but in, in other ways i got to them a lot slower too a lot of the grieving and the kind of the almost depression stage that i felt wasn't for several months after because i was so much trying to go 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 with my life and not think about it perfectly well knowing that it was gonna catch up And I knew it was. But I was ready to let it catch up when it got there. Whereas a lot of other people in my family really had that stage a little quicker. There may be other people in my family or other people that are close to Kaylin that still don't understand why. Maybe my explanation won't work for them. And that's fine. It just depends on who you are. Mm
1: -hmm. Sometimes you really can't let your emotions... Actions, just because you know, like you said a while ago, you 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 were sad for sure. Yeah. But you kept moving. Yeah. Um, for sure, you kind of developed it a little bit more different than your family did, and you know, you were kind of more able to how do you say um, you you were preparing yourself to deal with the consequences later in the future, rather they kind of let it hit them. Right away.
0: Yeah, and honestly, in that particular case, I don't really think one way is any more correct than the other. Part of me wishes, because there's advantages and disadvantages to both. If you think about it. Because if you let it hit you right away, if done properly, and there, let's put it this way, there's many ways to grief, but then there is, I do think that there is a proper way given your style of grieving. Which is... Essentially, let it be natural, but don't draw it out longer than you need to because the world does keep spinning. But for the people that would allow themselves to grieve right away, in a lot of ways, they were able to move forward with certain things that I couldn't until I got to that point. It's, it's definitely interesting because when that kind of thing happens, people can react a lot of different ways to it. Um, I've seen families lose loved ones who did not grieve properly. They alienated other people of their family, said some hateful things out of anger or, yeah, mainly anger. You know, they end up damaging more relationships as a result of that. That didn't need to be damaged. So when I say that there's a proper way to grieve, that's what I mean. It could take you years. It really can. But there is a difference between Grieving for too long and, and managing it. I lost a sibling, which is tough. I have no idea what it's like to be my parents who lost their oldest daughter that they tried for, for five years, just to have in the first place. I have no idea what it's like to try to have kids. Hopefully I will here soon. And by soon, I mean at least a few years down the road, a couple of years down the road, but I have no idea what it's like to really wanna try and be ready to have a kid. And have to wait for five years before that kid shows up. Most people freak out after like six months. There's that perspective of it, of losing your child that I don't understand. And I frankly hope I never do. Everybody's got their different angles to it. I mean, people impact people's lives in different ways. Let's put it this way. Like, even within my family, the feeling of losing my sister. My dog is... 13 years old. She probably does not have very long left. She's already outliving the average lifespan of a Labrador. I've had a little... I've gone through a lot with that dog. I've gone through a lot with my sister. But those experiences are obviously very different. So the grief is going to be very different in their different ways. Just like if I lost anybody else besides my sister, it's a unique grieving process for that person according to how they impacted your life. And I think the fact... That, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing from a spiritual standpoint, and I think a lot of people that are believers tend to forget this. But when somebody passes on, it's not actually a loss. It's a loss here, and there's a hole for you. And my mentor Craig would understand this, and he has told me this, too. But it's a net gain, because they're going on to the next world, and they're there and they're they're in the good place. So in a way it's really a gain. It's just a loss to you. Should be celebrated, which in a lot of ways I think we did do pretty well with that. We celebrated her. We didn't. We held, the, we held a celebration of life, not a funeral. At Hudson Gardens. A lot of colorful flowers around everywhere because she liked gardening. She liked flowers. It was very her, so to speak. So definitely definitely like glad that we did that in a lot of ways I think we honored her and continue to honor her in a way that we should and at the end of the day that I'm I'm good I'm good with that so you know it'll be fun as I tell my kids stories about her and they get to learn who Aunt KK is. That's what kids would call her. That's the other thing, too. Like, and I alluded to it earlier. Kids loved her. Like, in ways... She almost felt like because of, like... Because of the mental challenges that she had. I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, kids felt like she was one of them. Because I think kids actually go through things that... Only kids understand. But by the time you're an adult, you kind of forget... You lose that inner kid, but I always think that she was one of them. To this day, the best babysitter I ever had growing up. Bernie always beat me up.
1: <laughs> That's what <siblings> are for. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My older brother used to do this. If he listens to this podcast, it's gonna suck. But <laughs> my mom used to have this one rule growing up, where we couldn't leave the house while she was at work. My older brother understood that 100%. He could leave the house. Because he was older. Right. He was like 16 and 17 years old. Right. Uh, when he was like 15. But he knew that and he worked. So on the days that he didn't work, um, he bought a uh, like an automatic BB gun. Oh. And chased us around the whole house because there's no locks in the house. Oh, wow. And the only place that there's the locks was the bathroom and the basement. But the basement was scary. And the bathrooms are also pretty scary.
0: <laughs> what are you guys That's doing? It. Hiding bodies?
1: No. Well, you know, as kid, you know, as a kid, you're just always scared of the basement. Take a bite by yourself from all it, the horror movies and everything?
0: This is true. I mean, have you ever watched Home Alone? Which one? The first one, the original. No. You never watched Home Alone?
1: Oh, Home Alone, yeah
0: yeah you remember oh, yeah. the scene where he's in the basement yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like at the beginning he's like ah oh, I'm getting out of here
1: and it's like sometimes when you're rushing to the bathroom none of the bathrooms had windows it was just all light operated. right our source of light so you're running to the bathroom full speed you're not paying attention to turning on the lights you're just praying that you know you're enough to get into the door and lock it. Then he- and by the time you're locking you start realizing that you're safe you're like oh shoot it's pitch black in here now I can't see a thing. <laughs> That's awful scary. You
0: <laughs> ever get caught or not?
1: Oh, there's a, little, a lot of times. He, even my little brother, he ended up getting like indents mm-hmm. from the BBs because there was times where my brother ran out of the plastic ones, so he got the metal ones. It hurt.
0: He never caught a whooping for
1: that. We never snitched.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, I, I guess I can respect that. You know, I I. I would have totally snitched.
1: <laughs> what is the thing though? If you snitch, you're gonna get it worse. You know, you're gonna snitch. My brother gets his punishment, and guess what's gonna happen the next day when my mom goes back to work? Even worse. Even worse. You're gonna probably get pinned down and just ta 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 ta.
0: That's why you got to come up with something to one up him.
1: I'm gonna one up him. He had money.
0: Grab him. Grab his BB gun when he's asleep at night. Go up to him. Shoot him
1: in the dick. No, I was scared to go in his room just because I always thought he had. I never knew where he had the baby gun. Mm-hmm. He hid it to places where probably, most likely, he was in the basement. Because he wasn't scared. Or the attic. Somewhere where we couldn't reach because we were too short. And we couldn't take any uh, chairs or anything to upstairs. Or else he'd be. He'd know something's up. Yeah. You know but I like to take the. Thank the listeners for listening and thank you for sharing your story. And I hope this story helps somebody. And, you know, and and I hope they get to know you a little bit better just from the story.
0: Yeah, I, I hope so, too. I think, you know, one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this podcast was to help people. When we when we first came up with this idea, the whole monetization part of it and everything, it, it was really like not really a forethought for me, like it's like you know, in a tough economy, if it's another way to make money, great, fine but at the end of the day using stories to help people and the thin has a purpose of that too, because laughter it really is the best medicine
1: for me, that's why I like the thin part, because you know, you went through some crazy stuff I went through something so completely different than you. And the fact that you and I are not really, I don't want to say affected, but it didn't affect us in a negative way and we're still very joyful, happy people. Yeah. Is like a big thing because I know people that, you know, went through the same thing as you did. Right. Whole different situation in their life. Yeah. Or different, like, same with me. Um, Unfortunately, there's people that have done drugs and they're the dead or in jail. Right. And... Breakups, And now they have commitment problems.
0: Yeah, it's not so much what uh, life does to you, it's about how you react to it. Exactly.
1: You know, and I, you know, for the listeners, I hope you give us, you know, a five-star review, subscribe, and yeah. Bye. Bye.
0: Howdy, beautiful listeners. We here at Thick and Thin don't take ourselves too seriously, so please enjoy these beautiful outtakes, and hopefully they make your day. I don't like it. Don't let me keep it. It's a random piece of intermittent genius that I must say that I have on my part. It doesn't happen very often, but you know what? I will be proud of myself whenever it happens.
1: Trademark. But trademark
0: it. Trademark it. Yeah.
1: So nobody steals it.
0: What it be, what do you do? What Would Would it, be, it be,
1: what it do, do? This is Chrissy Pooh.
0: Howdy, folks. This is Tristan Blue.
1: Exactly. Okay, I'll be honest. When I looked up <laughs> Christopher Chavez... I was comparing myself to the Christopher Chavez, as in, am I the best-looking one?
0: Yeah. Cha-ching! Oh, yeah?
1: I think so. I mean, I'm a little conceited, but <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Sex. It's just Okay, Deuce Bigalow. Uh, being <the> a <laughs>
0: Six-year-olds win at anything.
1: Like I said, <laughs> us bowling together is like the worst. Thing. You gotta take Colleen, not me.
0: You, know, you want to actually hear a story of my competitiveness? It's a pretty funny story, actually. So, Antonia's middle nephew, six-year-old kid. Very, very competitive. Very intelligent, too. He actually reminds me a lot of me, personality-wise, when I was that age. So, if you look at the board game of Monopoly... Which, you, which everybody knows brings out the worst in people anyway. It says it's for ages 8 plus. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mind you, I told you, this kid is 6 years old. Playing Monopoly at, for a game that's not meant for a kid that's until they're at least 8 years old. So, tells you that he's got an advanced level of understanding or is attempting to understand something that's 2 years ahead of what normal kids would try to understand. Well, with Monopoly, you never really know how it's going to go. But this version of Monopoly, it's, like, the first one to get to a million bucks. It's meant to, like, speed up the game so that way you're not spending, like, ten hours playing Mm -hmm. a board game. So, we get into the game. It's me, him, and his older brother, who's nine, playing the game. So, we go into the game and he's just having some rough luck to the point where he has to like sell off his house just to pay me and so what happens is, is on this game whenever you land on a property you there would be a mystery card underneath and you'd either have to read it off or wait till later if you could use it later and you keep it a secret well he he's just learning how to start to read how to start reading, so he he has to read all of his cards. Anyway. So anyway, he um so I land on the most expensive property. And if you know this in Monopoly, you can do one of two things when you land on a property. You can either buy it if you have the means to, or you auction it. And so I just decided to auction this thing. Cause I had a card in my hand that pretty much said that I could steal whatever property I want from somebody. So I go into back and forth bidding war with him. I let him win. Pay over the price, over the normal price for the house. And then I land on the second most expensive property. I buy that one. And then I proceed to steal the property that I just made him overpay for. And then on the very next go around, he ends up losing because he lands on that spot in which since I had already built a house on. And he just starts having this epic meltdown. He's like crying. I'm surprised he didn't flip the board. I know a lot of people that have flipped the board. Antonia's flipped the board before. And she's not normally competitive. (laughs) It's so this kid is just like having a full-blown panic attack and it his mother comes in and takes him home and whatnot and i'm like and this was on christmas too (laughs) so i'm just like i just broke the spirit of a six-year-old boy on christmas yeah kind of proud of myself i i think a lot of people a lot of the time just like let kids win Mm -hmm. but I'm just like no you gotta learn how to lose too because here's the thing if you know how I am if we play Monopoly the next time and you beat me imagine how extra good that's gonna feel for you knowing that you don't have to question whether if I threw it for you you know you earned that I think that's a very valuable lesson for kids to learn I don't know how the hell we just got on this story because I've been telling it for a few minutes now, but...
1: what man just wants to be at the top. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got in uh... the story. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what he looks like. I don't discriminate. I'll beat, I'll beat all the kids.